0: Thank you again, ladies, for that song and that hymn of praise again tonight. Christ, indeed, our hope and life and death, and it is our burden to come around the word again this evening. As we come to know that same Savior, the Lord and King of all the earth, please turn again your Bibles now to Jonah chapter three tonight. Uh, moving into the third chapter of this uh, precious portion of God's word, the meetings go very quickly. Thank you for your continued prayers. Uh, certainly, know the Lord's help and. Night by night, we appreciate that. Thank you also for the prayers for, uh, for Cherith and the family back over uh, the Atlantic. I know they appreciate your prayers, and I certainly do. Uh, I've been over here a week now. Hard to believe. A week's gone already. A few days still uh, to go forward, but do keep praying for them as well in the next number of days. I know they appreciate uh, that. Believe it or not, I think they miss me, and that's a good thing, I suppose. So, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. And uh, let's read together the entire chapter. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God, and proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, and let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell that God will turn and repent, and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turn from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Amen. Let's pray together, please, in prayer. Again, we know the Lord's help and the sense of his presence. We can't take, again, past blessings. And presume upon that tonight, you again, to pray for God to come and bless your heart and the word this evening. Let's all pray. Eternal God and Father in heaven, We're thankful again for the grace in our souls to sing with gladness our testimony of faith in Christ Jesus. We thank you, God, we can proclaim with all of our souls, who is a pardoning God like thee? We hear the question, and as we ask the question, we affirm the answer. Only thee, the one true and living God, there is none like unto our God. We pray again for a sense of thy presence. That, oh God, you would help us to put away every distracting thought, those things that would hinder the planting of the word. We pray you'd help us to be careful in our minds and help us to study diligently the word of God again tonight. That we would not give ourselves to thee in imaginations and speculation, but Find ourselves governed by the material in your word. Let the word would be our only rule of faith and practice tonight. And do use your word tonight. And we come, O oh Lord, humbly. We're praying for signs following the preaching of the word. For signs in this church. You've been so gracious. So many positive signs of your work in the lives of your people. But dear Father, use your word tonight so that they would abound more and more. Give us grace, we pray. Bless each and every soul. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. There are two what we might call great Ebenezer stones in the biblical narrative that would encourage pastor, elder, and church member in the work of God. Indeed, these great Ebenezer stones ought to give us hope in the darkest of days. And those two stones, of course, are the repentance of the people in Nineveh and the repentance of the people in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They are two great Ebenezer stones bearing witness to God's power and God's ability. They bear witness to what God is able to do and what God may do even in our own times. They give us a sight of the glorious, marvellous mercies of God being outpoured in unique and special ways that we would look to God and hope in God and pray to God that as He's done in the past, He would do it yet again. These two great stones, if I can use that language, have certainly very interesting parallels They both occur following the death and resurrection of God's prophet. Jonah, in a typical fashion, of course, to the depths of hell, and then rising again, being spewed out of the fish's mouth. Christ, in true fashion, descending into the grave, and yet seeing no corruption and rising again the third day to the glory of God. On both of these occasions, Remarkable signs of God's spiritual work bringing souls to repentance occurs in Nineveh and then in Jerusalem. It's also worth noting that in both of these occasions, repentance predominates. We see the repentance of those who are under the preaching of the Word of God, Again, we saw in Matthew 12 last night that the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas. And of course, as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, the men are pricked in their hearts and they ask, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Interesting parallels. I'll also continue with that thought by saying that both occur when it was not expected. Unexpected times of God's blessing. A few weeks before Pentecost, the crowds are crying out, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! It's remarkable that in just a few days later, they're calling upon the Lord to save them. In terms of Nineveh, who would really expected the Ninevites to repent? Jonah had a good hunch. But the rest, the Ninevites, think of the depth of their sin. Again, chapter 1, verse 2, again, their wickedness has come up before me. And we, we saw that in the Lord's Day, it has a sense of arising up higher and higher, the, the depth of their sin before God. Think of the, the depth of their ignorance. You know, over in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul describes the state of the Gentiles without the knowledge of God. Ephesians 4 verse 17, listen to this. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness? That's Nineveh. It's exactly a description of Nineveh. They live with an understanding that is darkened, they're alienated from the life of God, they live in ignorance because of the blindness of their hearts. Why would they believe God and repent? Yes, why? As I said last night that it is an easy decision to follow Christ because of the certainty of the gospel. But I'm not suggesting for a second that man finds believing in Christ easy. The decision's obvious, but such is man's hardened depravity that for some reason, because of that, they will reject the clear claims of the gospel and believe a lie rather than follow the truth. Why would they believe? You see, Nineveh and Pentecost—they do serve as these two great landmarks in the Scripture, showing the mercies of God and His power to save a multitude in a moment. That's what God can do. I think rightly we can speak revival here. We can use that terminology. Now, I have to be careful, Uh, again, laboring and preaching in the U.S., you've got to be very careful when you mention the word revival. The word means different things to different people. In some circles, uh, again, there's great confusion regarding what is really a revival revival. The events in Asper University last year brought these things back to light as to what is really the nature of a true revival. Perhaps you heard of the students who were coming out in the college chapel experiencing what was termed to be a revival. It raised the issue, what is a revival? What does it look like? What does God do in such an occasion? Is a revival an organized meeting? Can you put a sign outside the church and say, revival, you know, November the 30th? come along for a revival. Well, in some places, yes, that's exactly what you see. For other people, revival is, a, is, is really a, a heightened emotional experience. Some encounter with some sort of religious experience. Now, I'm going to try to define it in a way that I believe you'll agree with, but I need to state my terms tonight, uh, seek to understand what I think the Bible teaches regarding what revival is. It is a sovereign movement of the Spirit of God. That's fundamental. It's not a work of man. It cannot be manufactured by man. It's a work that God does in his sovereign will, timing, and power. The sovereign work of the Spirit of God. What happens in that sovereign work is that people are brought to conviction of sin and faith in God's. Now revival is not only a New Testament phenomenon, I'm going to suggest that here in Nineveh we're seeing revival in the Old Testament, but what you see in the Old Testament is conviction of sin and uh, proselytes or unbelievers turning to faith in Jehovah. When you turn to the New Testament, that same experience has a, has a Christ-centered, Jesus-centered emphasis. Not different in essence, but different in the developing understanding of redemptive history. A sovereign movement the Spirit of God, bringing souls to conviction of sin and faith in God. We might say that revival is a sudden movement, a widespread movement, affecting people in a given region and locality. I think all of those things could be encompassed in a definition of revival. And so this is the case where there are those in Jonah chapter 3 and idolatrous people who are turned to Jehovah. We're told the size of Nineveh, verse number 3, we saw that. And we're told of the spread of the impact, verse 5, and following from the least, or sorry, from the greatest of them even to the least of them. A great number of all sectors of society turning from their sins to trust in Jehovah. Those of you who have been raised in the free church, We'll not be surprised at a sermon on revival. It is at the very core of our denomination. We unashamedly are a denomination that looks to God to send revival. We do. Some of you perhaps you are not familiar with the free church you're visiting tonight. Ask yourself a question. Is it right and proper to seek for revival? In our own presbytery in North America... Uh, Our elders and ministers, when they're ordained and installed in various charges, have to affirm the distinctive positions and practice of the FPCNA. They go from A to F, and F says this, they must affirm this, the necessity of giving ourselves to earnest prayer for a mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit's power, to make our service effective and glorifying to God and for genuine revival in our day. Every elder and every minister is said to affirm those particular sentiments. We all long for God to send genuine revival in our day. I meant to ask Reverend Greer earlier on, but am I right in remembering that Dr. Paisley used to exhort ministers to preach and revival at least once a year? Is that a right memory I have? No, Mr. Bagsley remembers that as well. I don't remember exactly, but I've, I, somebody told me that at one point, and I've tried to practice that. Uh, Once a year is probably not enough, but at least it's something. Because we do understand the emphasis and the need. Now, And here I do want to make a personal comment. And that is, I think, as I've thought of this over the years, I've become more and more aware of the fact that revivals are very rare. Very, very rare. You go through history, biblical and, and church history, revivals do not occur very often at all. In this land, early 1600s, 1859, and perhaps some small revivals elsewhere as well. And so sometimes we talk and we pray about the need for revival. Now, here, I'm not seeking to bring any word of rebuke or censure to such praying and such speaking. We see moral darkness all around us. We see spiritual declension Um, We see the benefit that revival would bring, and so we speak in terms of the need for revival because we perceive that revival would bring great benefit to the church and to the land. We understand that, and so we speak of the, the need for revival. Use that so long as you know what you mean by that type of language because need doesn't really fully take account of the sovereignty and wisdom of God. Right now, in the absence of revival, God is still giving his church what we need. He never, ever fails to give the church what the church needs. He always perfectly cares for his bride in such a way that even the absence of revival is a reflection of the need of the church, that we would seek God that we'd call upon God. And so if you use the need for revival and sense of your perception of what that might do for the church and for souls and for our community, that's fine. But my burden is and my concern is that we may misunderstand that in our preaching, in our young people, in our churches, with the idea that we so long for revival that our folks think that we're doubting God's blessings today. The idea that we're not content with what's good God's doing in his church today. And so children are born again by the Spirit of God, and we say, No, that's not enough, that's not good enough. You see, God ordinarily builds his church soul by soul, little by little, over decades upon decades upon decades, revival is rare. And yet God is still building his church. And the kingdom is still coming and being extended. And we praise God for that. I must guard our hearts from a discontented spirit. Be careful in these things. Our longing for revival does not mean that God is withholding his blessings now. Our longing should not mean that we despise the day of small things. Or ignore the ordinary glorious workings of God and his mercies in his church. I say all that because I'm going to preach on revival tonight. Because we ought to long for revival. We ought to burden for revival. We ought to see Nineveh and see Pentecost and cry with all of our hearts, Lord, even so, do it again. And so it is right and good and proper to long for God to come down in power. Now, there are those, again, I, we get all this, in the, we everything in the States, okay? Every sort of form of religion's in the States. And there are those who suggest, no, you shouldn't seek God for revival. It's just, if God sends it, so be it, but there's no prayer and no burden. You know, it's it's so very, very simple. If we desire that God would save one soul tonight, and that's okay, then it's entirely appropriate to desire for God to save a thousand souls tonight. Nothing wrong with that. That's praying for revival. As a burden in our hearts that God would pour His Spirit in a mighty way upon His church. And so to that end, we study these biblical revivals, Pentecost and Nineveh. We study them with interest to see, well, what are the features? How does God move? What does it look like? When does God come in power? And tonight there's three very, very simple thoughts to leave with you tonight. First of all, in a revival, we see the extension of the kingdom... That phrase is going to be repeated, okay? So all three points start with that. In a revival, we see the extension of the kingdom, first of all, in the purpose and plan of God. I'm using language of kingdom because that's the language of the gospel. The Lord comes in Mark chapter 1, and he he comes and preaches the kingdom of God and says the kingdom of God is at hand, and then he brings the command to repent and believe the gospel. Again, Christ's kingdom is not geographical. It's a spiritual kingdom. The kingdoms of this world, they have boundaries and borders. Christ's kingdom is the reign in the hearts of sinners. Hence, he tells them to leave off their former kingdom, the kingdom of sin and Satan, repent, and enter his kingdom, believe that he is the king and so head of the church. Repent and believe the gospel, the command of the coming kingdom. And so, in revival, this occurs in many hearts in a short time scale. But it's not different in essence from the regular, slow advance of the gospel. Now, I want to use this opportunity to really think a little bit about why Jonah is in our Bible. Because it is a unique book. It's an unusual book. Not only because of the account of somebody being swallowed by a fish. We get that, all right. Been there, done that. You get that. It's unusual. But it's actually an unusual book in the language here of verse number, verse number two, where God says to Jonah the second time, Arise, go unto Nineveh. That language is unusual in the Old Testament Scriptures. You see, we have to ask the question. What is God's purpose for the nations in Old Testament times? I think we can see here Jonah is a missionary to Nineveh in the context of the Old Testament. But what was God's purpose? Well, you go back to, again, really the beginning of history, and you see that God sets His love upon the line of Seth. And then Shem, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, Genesis chapter 9. But even then, post Noah's flood, there is a language that God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. Japheth describing the Gentile nations, and they will be blessed in their connection with the tents of Shem. The idea that God will bless the Gentile nations through his blessing of the line of Shem, the Shemites. And from that, you see his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then with the people of God through Moses. We see the people of God as a peculiar, set-apart people wholly unto God, as such they were to exemplify the will of God. When you think about the language in Deuteronomy chapter 4, listen to this, "...keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations." which shall hear all these statutes and shall say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. They were to live in obedience to God in the sight of the nations and bear testimony to the glory of God. We shouldn't read the Old Testament as if it was the New. One single line of covenant of grace, but there are distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's very clear when you get the Acts and the extension of the gospel into the nations. But what you see in the Old Testament is that God's covenant is really with the Jewish people, and Gentiles, there's hope given to them. Conversions are rare. Ruth, Rahab. But there's not common conversions. Israel was to live, and by their lip also make known the glory of God. Some of the Psalms reflect that, Psalm 66, make a joyful noise unto God, all ye lands, or declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among all people, Psalm 96. This language of really the glory of God going from Israel, from Jerusalem to the nations. But having said all that, Jonah is somewhat unique in going into a foreign land with the Lord's message. and I believe it occurs To pave the way for the expansion of the gospel into the nations in the new covenant. There's nothing in the New Testament that is not present in seed form in the old. And the missionary zeal of the church in the New Testament is here in seed form in the life and ministry of Jonah. He's showing all of us tonight. The mercies of God go beyond the boundaries of Israel. But for us tonight, if this is a revival, then it is again a reminder to us that God extends his kingdom in the context of his covenantal redemptive purposes. Same gospel, same Christ, same call to faith and repentance. That in Abraham the nations are blessed, Genesis chapter 12, fulfilled in Galatians chapter 3 in this gospel age. Same gospel, same Christ, same call to faith and repentance. So, revival is unusual, but not in essence. The application is very simple. If Christ's kingdom is not preeminent in a so called revival, then it is not a revival. Revivals are just the same things that God does in greater numbers and in shorter time. Same faith, same repentance. But secondly, please note that a revival sees the extension of the kingdom through the preaching of the Word. This is such a simple, you could write this sermon yourselves. It's through the preaching of the Word. And in days of continuing charismaticism, it's certainly true to emphasize the revival centers upon the preaching of the Word of God and occurs in context with the preaching of the Word of God. So note, first of all, then the man, Jonah 3, verse 1, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, and there's great emphasis again on the God of the second chance. That's certainly true. Here, the word comes a second time. Hugh Martin says this: it is a single signal, sorry, instance of divine grace when the rebellious servant is not only pardoned but even put back in office and allowed again to serve the Lord in special duty in His kingdom. The work of the Lord is perfect in bringing His erring servant to repentance and reinstating him. He seals the assurance of a forgiveness to him. Jonah is a pardoned man. You know Jonah illustrates some important considerations to those who are called to herald the Word of God. He is clearly an imperfect man. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Men have prayed that over the last number of days. The preacher is an earthen vessel. The treasure is the glory that the exalted power may be of God and not of us. Here, again, we've got to be careful. I want to tell you and affirm this, if you're considering the call of God in your life, your sinfulness does not mean that you're not able to serve the Lord. People say that sometimes, and it's used to perhaps excuse sin, or perhaps to place unqualified men into the Christian ministry. Jonah's example does not remove 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 regarding the qualifications of an elder. There are sadly cases in every nation where there are unqualified sinful men serving the gospel ministry. You see, the point of a man like Jonah preaching the word of God is not to excuse his sin, but it is to emphasize God's grace. He's a sinful man who's known the grace of God. He's a personal recipient of God's grace. He's a saved man. There must not be anyone laboring in the gospel who's not a saved man. Someone who does not personally have an understanding of the grace of God in their own souls. Jonah had personally known that and could serve really as a living illustration of the gospel mercy. You know, in many ways, Jonah could go to Nineveh and say to them, judgment's coming. And they could look at Jonah and say, well, God judged you and look at you, you've got out okay. He's a living illustration of the marvelous mercies of God and as such gives hope and so does every true gospel preacher. They're a living illustration of the mercies of God and they live that illustration. I'm only a sinner saved by grace and if God can save me, he can save you. That's the hope of the gospel minister. That's Paul's experience, wasn't it? He commented that he was the chief of sinners. God in mercy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. For this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all suffering as a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him unto life everlasting. He's a sinner saved by the grace of God. Sinful men, imperfect men. Do you know? Here in Ballymena, you've got two sinners as pastors. And they are not surprised by that comment. They know that themselves. But because you sinners as pastors, you may observe, and then at times, a lack of sinless perfection. But let me encourage you. A lack of sinless perfection in your pastoral staff does not prevent God bringing revival. God brings revival through Jonah, and his lack of perfection does not hinder the grace of God in turning the hearts of the people of Nineveh. So he's an imperfect man, yet at one and the same time he is now an obedient man. These things are held in perfect harmony. We're not suggesting that sinful men can do what they like we're suggesting that these are men who are sinful, and yet they come under the Lordship of Christ. It's worth noting that the second word to Jonah is slightly different from the language of the first commissioning. Chapter 1, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. And then you get to chapter 3, and the verse number 2, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city... And listen to the language, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. It's as if God's saying to Jonah, you've gone astray, make it clear in your own mind that you go forward and you do what I bid. You go where I say and you say what I say. You're under my authority, you're my servant doing my bidding. And so you see on down through the passage, it says then, in verse number 3 of chapter 3, So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. It's a different situation, isn't it? He wants to leave the presence of God in chapter 1. Remember what that meant? He's a prophet who stands in God's presence. He doesn't want that, but now he's going according to the word of the Lord. Obedience. Obedience. This second call emphasizes the necessity of full obedience. It states Jonah's obligation to give the words that God gives him. It's a reminder to Jonah and to all preachers that they must not only obey the call to go, but obey God in the content of the message. Those who know God's grace must recognize the need to hear and obey the commands of God. Obedience. So you see, remember the words, turn across, perhaps briefly, just a second, Timothy chapter 2. Because we, we often fall off the cliff one side or the other in these things, and uh, again, there are times and there, there are denominations and congregations, and they seek to excuse the sins of their pastors, and they say, well, God, use earthen vessels and sinful men. And in so doing, they deny the necessity of the men of God being set apart, sanctified men, holy men. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, it says this, If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Now again, we could go all over the place from that text but in the context itself, he's to purge himself from the false teaching in the previous context. He has to be a pure man regarding his moral orthodoxy, understanding the teaching of the Word of God and clear in doctrine. You know, it is sinful to believe a heresy. And therefore, if the men of God in their pulpits are going to labor, they've got to be sound in Doctrine. That's a part of him being set apart. You, you, you cannot tolerate false teaching in the pulpit. Set apart from those things. But also in verse 22, that it flee youthful lusts. That, we can look at that and we can define that for ourselves. But again, in the context, it seems to be that the warning is against a proud and a troublesome heart. Desiring prominence. And importance, verse number twenty-four the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patient. Youthful lusts are impatience and pride. Whatever the case may be, I'm just making the point that this language involves the men of God being obedient, set apart unto God. They know their sin, but they also know they come under the Lordship of Christ and they're going to obey Christ. You should never forget to pray for your preachers. That by the Spirit of God, they would obediently be consecrated men unto God. That's the man. Imperfect and obedient to the message. The message is clearly directly from God and directly to man. Look at the language again, chapter 3 of Jonah, as this message comes from God. Jonah 3, verse 2. Preach unto the preaching that I bid thee. Again, men have prayed that all week. The understanding that the man of God comes in the pulpit to preach the words that God gives. Verse number 5, so the people of Nineveh believed God. Not Jonah, but they've heard the very words of God. There is an obligation upon a godly preacher to preach the word of God. There are various ways, again, in which that can really not work out so well for some men. They have this understanding. They think to themselves, well, revival hasn't come yet. We have in our denomination, again, a longing for revival. And so they begin to think, well, perhaps my preaching is defective in some way. I'm trying to keep it simple. I'm trying to preach the Word of God. But that's not really working. I need to think of some other way to, to really communicate, to, to get people to convince, to convince them regarding the gospel. Or perhaps even more troublesome... Men have this understanding, well, revival's not coming. God's not saving multitudes of souls. Let's think of new and novel ways to bring people in, and then they'll come to believe the gospel. And what's happening is we long for revival to such a degree that we don't see it coming, and then we begin to doubt the power of the Word of God. The Word of God changes men's hearts, saves souls by the power of the Spirit of God. Never, ever doubt the power of God's word. And if you're here from some other congregation, I don't know where you are, where you come from, where you're, whatever. You encourage your pastor. Keep on preaching the word. Just give us the word. Week by week, we want the Bible. We want the Bible. We want the Bible. And bring in your friends and family and let the Bible do its work. It's the word of God that God uses in revival. So you see in chapter 3 here, in verse number 4, the language used, Jonah's message is, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Again, it is clear that the Bible often summarizes sermons in brief. When the Assyrians respond with belief in God in verse number 4, and they fast and etc., and they condemn themselves in verse number 8... It is clear, I believe, that Jonah has revealed more than simply the words recorded in verse number 4. What did Jonah say? Did they interrogate him? We have no idea. But it is clearly the case that they have a basic knowledge of God through his preaching sojourn with them. But even in the words of verse number 4, there are some tremendous things assumed. This language Jonah comes with the word of God, and he is coming with the assumption that there is only one true and living God. To a pluralistic world, even that itself is remarkable. Here's a man coming at a fish, going into the town and saying, Oh, by the way, there's one God one true and living God. And beyond that, the one true and living God has the power to judge. He's going to bring judgment upon the city. Forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That assumes sin, which assumes law. All of this is assumed in this sermon. This is a preacher coming with the law of God to sinners and saying, you've been sinning against the one true God. He's the judge of all the earth and he's going to bring judgment in forty days. You're under condemnation. That's the word. comes with power and brings people to conviction of sin. The thundering of the law of God exposing men to their wickedness before God. A message that comes from God directly to man. Plain and simple preaching confronting sin. Again, there's a difficulty in this modern world of internet and the intellectuals all around us that so we think to ourselves, we've got to preach clever sermons that argue for this or that or the other thing. There is a time for plain declaration of the authority of God. God is, this is His law, you're a sinner, judgment's coming, here's the gospel. Plain, authoritative, declarative preaching. And so you see, in true revival, preaching for conviction predominates. And preaching that brings comfort through the power of the gospel. So, thirdly, revival is the extension of the kingdom, yes, and the purpose of God. Through the preaching of the word. Thirdly, obviously, in the power of the spirit of God. Now, if you're still with me, you'll understand that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in this chapter. No reference. So, therefore, you say, preacher, here he goes again. He's going to insert his own ideas into the word. Well, I believe my assertion is based upon biblical principles, but it also arises directly from verse number 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God. That is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. They heard the message, they accepted the report, and they sought God for mercy. Verse number 9, Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away his fierce anger that we perish not? You see, belief in the Word only comes in the power of the Spirit of God. We find that developed further in the New Testament. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. We see that in the New Testament, the hardness of men's heart, impossible for them to believe or to call Jesus Lord without the work of the Spirit of God. Natural man will only believe when their heart is made new by the Spirit of God, or like Lydia, their heart is opened, that they receive the things that are spoken, it's only by the Spirit of God. We may presume that people will believe. You know, parents, we're guilty of this, aren't we? If we can just get our children under the Word of God enough times, it's like we've lost some sort of idea in our mind, 100 sermons, 200 sermons, kids are panicking now, 500 sermons, whatever the case may be, just enough sermons, and eventually they're going to believe. Why? Dead, depraved hearts, blind hearts, with no desire for the gospel unless the power of the Spirit of God changes their lives. Then it will say, then you put your name in there, then so-and-so believe God's. I count it a great privilege to preach here this week. Very thankful for the opportunity to be here and bring the Word of God. But to my mind, this is not the greatest privilege I've enjoyed in preaching. In 2016, I was preaching in a little village along Riverbank in Nepal. I was there with LTBS. And I got to preach in this little village. There were chicken and us children running around me as I preached the word. We had gone there. Reverend Thapa had taken a group of us to go and see this village. It was about eight miles up of her bed, From a bridge of a reasonable sized town with the main road, and we drove up this riverbed, crossing back and forward uh, through the river. Thankfully, it was low at that time of the year, and made our way to this village. Parked the vehicles and walked up, you know, maybe 10 or 12 houses, some people gathered together around the Word of God. That was unusual enough. But but then I began to hear the story. And the pastor of his church, a young man, came out and, again, Reverend Thabba told his the account. He had been walking one day. He had walked down into the town and was standing at the bridge off the main road. And one of the evangelists from the denomination, they had, they had spoken to this young man, explained the gospel to him, and he believed the gospel. He went back to the village, told his family. They also, most of them, believed the gospel. And a church was born. I'm kind of going there, well, isn't that wonderful? And then I was driving back and thinking to myself, what? Why on earth would a group of villagers with no prior knowledge of the gospel believe one of the young men in the the village bringing a word from some other stranger who he met on a bridge in a town eight miles away from the riverbed? Why on earth would they believe that? That makes no sense. Would they not say to the young man, listen, go and have a wee lie down. You've had too much sun. You're getting strange notions. We do our things. They might do their things, but we do our things, and we're not for changing. What made the difference? The almighty power of the Spirit of God that can turn a blind eye to seeing and a dead heart to trusting in Christ Jesus. Preaching in that little village was, I suspect, the highlight of my entire preaching ministry. Because I saw the power of God firsthand. And what God can do when His Spirit blesses His Word. Revival is a work of the Spirit of God. Not in the way the charismatics think, but as the Spirit of God gives unction to the Word and application of the Word It is preaching in the power, the Spirit of God. Again, I'm using this language in a very broad sense. It is the sense of unusual power in preaching and an unexpected responsiveness to the preaching. Yeah, revival's rare, but when it comes, there's unusual power and unexpected responsiveness. And it's entirely right for us to long for that and to pray for that and to desire that. Not doubting God's will today, but desiring that sinners be converted under the power of the Word of God. And so, what is his unction? Well, E.M. Bounds, in his book, Power Through Prayer, says this, unction is that indefinable, indescribable something. Well, two words, indefinable, and indescribable, and he's going to define it and describe it. But anyway, he says this, what an old renowned Scottish preacher describes thus, there is sometimes somewhat in preaching That cannot be described either in matter or expression, and it cannot be described what it is or whence it cometh, but with a sweet violence, it pierces into the heart and affections and comes immediately from the Lord. It is this unction which gives the words of the preacher such power, sharpness, which creates such friction and stir in many a dead congregation. Bounce continues, he explains this way, The same truths have been told in the strictness of the letter, smooth as human oil could make them, but no signs of life, not a pulse throb, all as peaceful as the grave and as dead. The same preacher in the meanwhile receives a baptism of his unction, and the divine is upon him, the letter of the word has been embellished and fired with mysterious power, and the throbbings of life begin. The unction pervades and convicts the conscience and breaks the heart. Unction is simply putting God in his own word and on his own preacher. You need to pray for this. You need to call upon God for such days. Again, not because we doubt what God is doing to bless his church today, but because we long to see thy church is full with all thy chosen race, With one heart and voice and song, we sing thy redeeming grace. It is a burden for God to save souls. Is it right to pray for this? Well, I think we have the inspired example of the Apostle Paul. And that for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. We must labor faithfully, sow and water the seed, and God gives the increase. Same preacher, same truth, but now preaching with peculiar force. You know, if revival comes, God will have come down and applied the word. A greater degree of the ordinary, the God that saves one soul at a time, now coming to a multitude in a moment. An outpouring of the marvelous mercies of God. I commend this chapter to your study, that it would ignite a longing in your soul, a fresh zeal in the place of prayer, that God would come and revive us again. Eternal God, be pleased to hear our cries tonight, stir up our hearts to have deeper longings and deeper desires for these things, that you would save one, yes, but save a multitude in a moment, we pray. Come empowered part upon this area. Turn the hearts of the unregenerate to thee. Cause them to repent and believe the gospel. Hear our cries and we'll give thee all the praise and all of the glory. May we depart now with your fear and your favor resting and abiding upon us. As we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.